First on film, entertainment and AFL football. Dave, what is going on? Dave Griffiths, I'm talking about. There is football 365 days a year. I'm like a pig in heat. Is that I, I know. There is so much going on. I think this is one of the busiest off-seasons we have ever seen. Fantastic. I mean, you can't get enough of it. Mind you, there are lots of negative stories, which is what football is all about. They, you know, it, it'd be pretty boring if it was all bonhomie all the time. Having said that, I've got no idea how a lot of these issues are going to be resolved. First question, and this is one for Greg King. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, St. Kilda's. St Kilda's process in appointing a coach, where's the process? We want Ross Lyon. We're going to speak to him 17 times. Then he's going to be appointed. Where's the due diligence with all the other potential coaches? Oh, there's probably a lot of manoeuvring behind the scenes there. I believe that um, some of the St Kilda former players are some of the big movers to get Ross Lyon back there, and I believe Eddie McGuire's been involved in this too. But but the point that I'm making is that all of these other potential coaches aren't even being spoken to potentially, are they? They're not even – there's not conversations going on. Every day it's more and more about one person. Well, so, I've had conversations with the other ones, but they keep calling Ross Lyon back in probably to cement him in. Well, hang on, hang on. Do we know that they've had conversations with the yeah, other – Yeah, they've had some with Adam Uze and a couple of others. Oh, okay. Well, did, Dave, did you know that? Because the, I, I wasn't aware that they'd actually spoken to them. They'd mentioned these names in the media – but I wasn't aware that St Kilda had actually spoken to these people. Yeah, I was aware that they've also spoken to Robert Harvey as well. Um, so, yeah, there's been a few people that they've spoken to. But, hey, if you're being offered a Ferrari, you take the Ferrari. Oh, no, I don't disagree with that at all. And, I mean, you know, he's it's a totally different tune to the Carlton and Essendon jobs when he basically, oh, well, I'm not going to go through the process, et cetera, or I'm not interested at all. The other the other interesting thing for me is now we've got the terms of reference in terms of how the Hawthorne mess is going to be sorted out. I'm not convinced it's going to be sorted out at all because with Hawthorne having offered mediation, which will result no doubt in payments to the players who have complained about the way they were treated, and you've got a separate process going on where they may or may not cooperate, but the coaches are compelled to cooperate. Where are we going to get a meeting of minds here? How are we going to solve all of this, Dave? Exactly. Look, it's going to be one very, very sticky mess. But let's not forget the other news story out there in the AFLW. We've finally had what everyone's feared in AFL football, a game with a wrong result because of a goal umpire's mistake. Oh, you're going to whinge about the fact that, you know, uh, it was a, 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 what do we call it, tiggy touchwood decision, wasn't it? I mean, hang on, it depends on which way the wind blew. <laughs> Not really. It sailed through for a goal and an Essendon player touched <laughs> hey, the post. I'm making excuses here. <laughs> I, I, we're talking about our two teams, aren't we? Essendon yeah. and the Sydney Swans. And, you know, we win, you lose. That's that's the fair result, I reckon. But even taking the teams out of that, isn't that a worry that one day a really important AFL game is going to have a wrong result because of a goal umpire's mistake? It's Dave, it happens all the time. Finals are decided by wrong decisions. It's nonsense to say, oh, it'll write itself by the end of the game. Totally disagree with that. But there's always going to be a human element. Technology is not always going to be right either. And that, yeah. so, I mean, technology to me, the use of it is better than not using it because it seems to have improved the number of errors. I, I do believe that. But how close to perfect? 
you know, it's it's judgment. A lot of football is about judgment. Um, I mean, I understand, and I, I think he's a terrific player. But Patrick Cripps won the Brownlow Medal, even though even it, it wasn't deliberate. But a, a player that he he collided with was concussed and out for a couple of weeks. Now the league didn't like that at all because they're trying to stamp out concussion. So or was trying to stamp out head knocks because of the long term implications. There are all sorts of problems, and that's with every sport. I don't think it's just AFL footy. The decisions, what about cricket? The decisions in cricket, Dave? Some yeah, of the, yeah. you know, did it nick, did it not nick, all of those sorts of things. Uh, how do we know how accurate the technology is? I mean, yeah, why, yeah. for example, in a football, why, why do we not put chips in footballs that could determine whether or not a post is hit or not hit? That, that's a pretty simple thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. So why why don't we have that? And Greg, I reckon you should be whinging a lot because you're a St Kilda supporter and you won one solitary flag in what 150 years of football, and and that was by the narrowest of margins. So you know when's your next flag coming, Greg? In your lifetime, you reckon? Well, that's what they hope Ross Lyon is going to deliver. Exactly. Yeah. Come now, Peter Krause. I better introduce you because you're you're actually on board, but you've got no idea what we're talking about, do you? I'm not the least bit interested. In fact, I'm waiting for AFL The Soap Opera as a miniseries. Well, it'd be a great miniseries, wouldn't it? It'd be fantastic. Hey, talking about miniseries, I mean, if you were Liz Truss, how would you be feeling right now? But 44, 45 days in charge. It's been a disaster from day one. The King of England sort of utters something under his breath when he sees you, you know, not you again. No, it wasn't quite those words. It was was something less sacrilegious, but still it it, it seemed a tainted uh, expression. And within a fortnight, you're gone. And now that, I mean, now they're talking about potentially bringing Boris Johnson back. <laughs> this is, we're talking about a soap opera, are we not, Peter? What was it um, um, Paul Keating said about, I think it was Andrew Peacock, a souffle never rises twice? Well, I mean, I, can can you imagine? I, I'm still somewhat sceptical, but can you imagine Boris Johnson coming back, what, six weeks after he was pilloried by a lot of the people who are now going to vote him potentially back into power? That's not going to happen, is it, Dave? I don't know. I've British politics, in one, in one time it was one of the most stable political environments in the world, and now it seems like... Um, they're having more prime ministers than us. It's, yeah, it's so, so weird. But, uh, like, this prime minister that's in at the moment, like, she's, uh, I don't know, it's that's a weird case because, remember, there was journalists that couldn't even remember her name um, at the very start of her tenure, whereas normally when a prime minister comes in, it is a huge thing. Everybody knows who they are. But, I don't know, it feels like her um, time as prime minister has been limited from the very start from when she was sworn in yeah i mean i suppose she she got the job with one hand tied behind her back because the economy is really tanking and I, we could be complaining about the economy here but i'd, I'd rather be here than in england at the moment that's for sure so the, that's the, the, the tories are in a great deal of trouble that they, they don't know what direction to take and i think they should return uh against the brexit decision and return to europe well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people who've been saying that since the decision was made, oh, we didn't really mean this for, for it to happen, and yet it has. Uh, and, yeah, since then, the country seems to have gone backwards. So, but 
do you think that's going to happen anytime soon, honestly, Peter? Uh, it, look, it's it's hard to say because the country is in so much trouble. They have to do something to address it, and and even though it's a global issue as well, um, with what's happening in Russia, etc., uh, it's uh, I think they might have to reverse decisions as has already happened. Look, they're still churning out some decent films, mind you. So, but by the way, did you see the story only yesterday morning? Dame Judi Dench had a go at uh, people, you know, the crown, I think you guys were talking to me about this a couple of weeks ago and I haven't, I've never seen it, but mm. the, you know how it's coming up to more contemporary times and Charles and Diana, et cetera, et cetera. And the, Dame Judi Dench uh, sort of made a point of saying, this is not fact. This is, you know, pushing fiction. And she, she was very, very strong. Apparently she's a friend of um, Camilla and that's, yeah, I, that that was what the story I read talked to me about, and I suppose Dame Judi Dench has got a very big voice in the UK. So whether whether more people are going to listen to her or not, I reckon that this issue or this season of The Crown is going to be probably as popular as any because people like titillation, don't they? I mean, that's that's what makes movies. And uh, look, it, it's funny we most of us attended the uh, Bros last week, right? Uh, and again, there was sort of that to me was one of the most successful events that the studio had had. And if if you'd done a mainstream movie like that 20 or 30 years ago, it would have caught a lot more controversy than it has today. I wonder how it's going to do at the box office. What, what are your expectations, Peter, for a movie like Bros? Uh, it's hard to say because it didn't do well in America. I'm talking Australia. What do you yeah, think? How, I, I, I think in Australia it might do better because I think people are looking for comedies and uh, I think people will go and see a rom-com like this. I, I spoke to somebody during the week. I'm interested in, in your views on this too, Dave and Greg. He is a gay guy who, a uh, very nice chap like anybody else is, but he said that the sex scenes are probably a bit too much for uh, a, a non-gay audience. Do you agree or disagree? Look, I, I have a gay friend who has seen the film and his biggest concern with the film was that, once again, it felt like even though it was a movie that was put together largely by um, people in the scene, he said it still felt like cliched sex scenes. It didn't feel like what he feels with his partner. So that was his biggest concern. But... I think also with what's happened with the film in America, let's be honest, there were certain states of America where it was never going to take off um, as a film. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Europe and Australia accepts Bros as a film. I thought the comedy in it was terrific. I, I, I really oh, yeah. I really enjoyed what I saw. I think the writing of it was just splendid and the acting was excellent, really, really strong. I, I mean, has there been a mainstream movie as populist as this because Breakback Mountain was more specialised, great great film, but more specialised. I think, Peter, were you saying something to me the other day? Is there another populist gay movie you can think of that has got yes. publicity? What was that one? Love, Simon, which did extremely well for Sony around the world. Do you remember? I don't even remember it. It's about a gay teenager uh, wanting to come out in his school and his family uh, and uh, looking for love, I suppose. But but that wasn't as big a film as this. They didn't promote it to the high heaven, did they? 
Yes, they did. It had oh, yeah. a lot of yeah. publicity. Yep. Okay. I, look, I, funnily enough, I, I'll, I'll have to double check because I, I do think I've got some vague memory now that I might have seen it. I'll have to look back at what I what I scored it and all of that at the time. Let's talk about. Well, I was going to mention all you talking about. That, I was going to mention a film called Love Is Strange with Alfred Molina and John Lithgow, which was also a fantastic film about two older gay men. But again, was it? I'm asking whether it was as big. Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm surprised in all of these conversations, no one's been talking about the the two television shows, Queer as Folk. They were both yeah. absolutely massive when I was at university, and everybody was watching them. Mm, oh, by the way, I, yes, I did see Love Simon. So thank you, Peter. Um, and I gave it a seven out of ten. So there you go. That was that was at the time. Uh, let's. Um, by the way, I'm just going blank. Did we uh, have we spoken at length about this movie yet, bros, or we haven't because it hasn't. When when um, when no, is that? Next week. No, next week. Okay. Well, look. I mean, I don't mind seeing seeing we're talking about it now. I mean, there's no embargo on it, is there? In terms of talking about it, no, no. So no. so do you do you mind seeing we're talking about it if we give it a little bit more, you know, conversation now and then? Yeah, I know. I know we're preempting what might happen next week, but it, it's it's a movie that has received a lot of publicity and I can't remember a time when you've got both stars and the director in Melbourne as one of the first countries in the world to see it. I'm, I'm not sure whether, are we the first nation outside the United States to screen the movie or not in Melbourne? Do, do any of you know? I think they said they were going on a tour, so maybe Australia is first. But But the other thing that's really unusual about it is that uh, we're talking about a movie that uh, has uh, was launched in Melbourne rather than Sydney. Usually, the previews go to or the the stars go to Sydney. I'm not sure what what happened with this one. I'm very pleased they came here. But but as far as I'm concerned, notwithstanding Love Simon, this is the most mainstream gay movie yet made, and I, I reckon it's a surefire winner. How broad a winner it is 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 another matter because I thought it was genuinely funny and at times it was poignant. And the plot, well, it is a universal one with a screenplay by one of the stars of the film, Billy Eicher, and the director, Nicholas Stoller, both of whom I mentioned were out here in Melbourne. And Nicholas Stoller, probably best known for a movie such as Forgetting Sarah Marshall. What else has he done, Nicholas Stoller, guys? What what other films do you remember of his? Uh, yeah, okay, yep, get him to the Greek. Anything else stands out? No. All right. I, I mentioned I thought the acting was terrific. You've got 40-year-old Bobby played by Billy Eichner. Eichner. Is it Eichner or Eichner? I get, uh, Eichner. Eichner with an N. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, sorry, I apologise to him. But, um, yeah, okay, so you've got 40-year-old Bobby played by Eichner. Uh, he's an intense, intelligent single Jewish homosexual who hosts a popular podcast in which he tells people what he thinks, just like we do. And he's just accepted a job as head of the first LGBTQI plus history and culture museum. He's polished, he's erudite when he gets onto the big stage. But one thing Bobby cannot do is to find Mr. Right. He's got the occasional meaningless hookup from uh, platforms such as Grinder, but save for sex, there's no connection. And then in a club, he sets eyes upon 
this buff individual called Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane. He's a lawyer specialising in wills who is not on the social media platform grinder, and he also happens to like country music. Long-term connection is not a thing for Aaron either, so for neither of these two characters, Bobby or Aaron. And yet despite him frequently disappearing, that's Aaron, he and Bobby hit it off and they become an item. But not all is smooth sailing. As Bobby's full-on personality and Aaron's interest in an old sporting chum get in the way. And on top of that, Bobby and his executive team at the museum are constantly at loggerheads. Aaron, well, he really hates his job. Really a number of noteworthy cameos that we should mention here as well. Deborah Messing from Will and Grace television series, Kristen Chenoweth from Glee, Ben Stiller, Night at the Museum. They are among the cameo roles here. It, it features an all G- LGB- LGBTQI plus crew, and I reckon it hits all the right notes. It, it pokes fun at stereotypes. To me, it does that. And it celebrates sexual diversity, and it deals with frustration and insecurity and pride. I thought the writing, well, it's acerbic, plenty of laugh-aloud moments, and you've got, you know, the various characters. So let's kick it off with you, Dave. What did you think of Bros, notwithstanding your gay friend saying that, uh, you know, saying a few derogatory remarks about the way the script was uh, was was put together? Look, I thought it was a I thought it was a good film. Um, Stoller has always been good with humour. Um, he also likes at times to be a little bit crass with his humour, which we saw with um, Bad Neighbours um, and Bad Neighbours too. But here, I think he actually reins the crassness back in. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing him this week, and he talked about the fact that this is a film that he's wanted to make for years and years and years. And he's always felt that he hasn't had the right partners to make the film with because as a straight male, he didn't feel like this was a film that he needed to tell the story of or could tell the story of, I should say. Um, But I thought he reigned in a lot of that crassness that he's had in his other films. He's made this a more poignant film. There were some genuine laugh out loud moments in there. I don't think I've heard an audience laugh so much in a comedy for years. So I think that the characters are interesting. You, you like the characters. Um, they, they did feel like there was something missing, and I thought a couple of scenes ran over long. But for the general part of it, it was a, it was a good rom com. Yeah, it really was. It, it, some of the scenes there, there were a couple of scenes there. It was one on a beach that I think went on for too long, Peter. But I, I thought it was a strong film. What did you think? No, I think it's a very good relationship comedy. The the quality of the writing, as you've both mentioned, is uh, excellent. Uh, obviously, Billy and uh, Nick spent a lot of time fashioning the script uh, and making it uh, very amusing with lots of uh, cultural references and in-jokes, uh, etc. And uh, it was great to see Deborah Messing uh, in that cameo uh, appearance, sending herself up uh, yes. from the, the Will and Grace uh, sort of uh, television series and it's interesting how people are commenting on the sex scenes. Um, we don't comment at all or balk at all at heterosexual love scenes, and some of them can be quite explicit, and Forgetting Sarah Marshall and other films like that, rom-coms, have also uh, gone into uh, sex scenes in a bit more detail. And yet here we have a homosexual uh, sort of relationship and sex scenes, and we start to question it. And, and yes, Dave, you're right. In America, there were some states that uh, were obviously put off 
by that. But that's a great but, but, shame but because then, <laughs> Peter, I agree with the commentary, but I I think it says that as enlightened as we'd like to think we are, we're not enlightened at all. We're, well, we're... I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I think uh, there is a, a small a pocket of people who are very conservative and will object, but uh, I, I think we are much more enlightened, certainly in Australia, uh, than uh, aspects of America. So, look, I was uh, quite impressed by the writing and the quality of the film. The relationships were well-developed between the two men, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. But but I would say that we're on the road. We are on the road to greater tolerance and so forth. But I don't think in Australia we're there either yet. I think we're on the road. Would you would you disagree with that? Carrie? I disagree with that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have agreed to gay marriage. Oh wow. Okay. Um. Well, what do you think about that, Greg? Do you think we're in you know, we're fully enlightened in Australia or not? Um. Probably not yet, but we're moving that way. We're a lot and that's more the point that I'm making. That's exactly the point I'm making. But we're moving in the right direction, but we're certainly a long way from being tolerant. Do you think we're a tolerant society, Peter? Uh, I think generally speaking, we are. Again, there are always going to be exceptions, and, and we've found that in, in a number of examples uh, of culturally of late. But uh, I think we are more tolerant. Uh, I don't think people will be put off by seeing this film. I think the film should do well in Australia. Mm, it's interesting. There was an article over the last few days, I don't know whether you read it, Peter, that the rise of, uh, of anti-Semitic sentiment and neo-Nazism has reached a zenith at the moment uh, in, in recent history. And there was uh, a researcher who looked at eight separate groups and a lot of the intolerance is coming from younger people, according to this report. I don't know whether you read that or not. This, this again, it gets to the heart of tolerance. And, and to, me, to me, there's still a great deal of intolerance. Yeah, I haven't read that. Uh, look, yes, of course there are. Uh, there's intolerance out there in some small communities and some groups, etc. You're never going to eliminate that. But if we're talking about generally as a country, are we more tolerant? The answer is yes. Mm. Uh, Greg, have you seen Bros as well, mate, or not? Yeah, I, was, I was there on Sunday night to watch the preview as well. I enjoyed, okay. I enjoyed what it. You? I thought. I thought this was uh, a wonderful gay romantic comedy there, some very funny lines there. Um, and I thought, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it plays around with the stereotypes but has fun with them. There's some great um, wonderful cameo appearances there to add to the flavour of the film. It's well written, interesting characters. I call it when Aaron met Bobby because it's basically looking at um, the relationship between two people who seem unable to commit to their relationship and it follows their journey a little bit there. And I like some of the scenes at the LBTQI museum there when they were put, trying to put the exhibits together and the, um, all the different um, executive board where they were arguing and they were at loggerheads. I thought that was very funny and well-developed as well. I agree there are a couple of scenes that probably went on too long, but it's a, a good, interesting glimpse into the gay lifestyle in sort of New York. Mm, I, I thought Eichner did a marvellous job showcasing vulnerability and strength. And McFarlane nailed the body beautiful, caught off guard by brains and straight talking. The, the pair's got strong chemistry. I, I thought that worked really well between them. And, and I mean, they, they, we, of course, and we've referred to it without being explicit, but there are several simulated sex scenes and lots of kissing. It also features an ear-pleasing, appropriately worded original love song as one of the last scenes. And they were explaining this to us uh, at the preview on the Sunday night that the person who, who wrote that, who was Billy Eichner, 
asked the director, he said, look, you know, I've, I've penned a bit of a tune. Do you mind if we sort of try and put it in there? And so they made the spur of the moment decision. The, the, that song wasn't going to be there. And and I think it works really, really well. I found it really enjoyable, a little bit long. I, I don't think it really needed to be 115 minutes. Did, did the length worry any of you? No. No. No? Okay. I thought it was. I thought a few of the scenes could have been cut back to help the flow and maintain momentum, and that would have cut a, a, a few minutes off the running time. And, look, it, it's um, – I like the fact that it's completed with big screen backing, right? I mean, it's a, it's a film that has got a big studio behind it, uh, and bear in mind it was shut down like so many others were because of COVID. They picked it up and ran with it when they could. Uh, it, it's got the appeal of populist movies to me like Bridesmaids, uh, that producers such as Judd Apatow have been associated with. So, and he's one of the producers here. I can see the box office ticking over. I'm not saying it's going to be uh, the smash hit like, like Top Gun, but nevertheless, it, it paves the way for more big screen misadventures from the LGBTQI plus community, and and that's a good thing. So, uh, let's get scores out of ten. Uh, start with you, Dave. Look, I'm going to give this one 7 out of 10. I think that it did have some faults, but generally it was a good rom- rom-com. Mm-hmm. Peter? <laughs> Funny you mentioned Top Gun. Mm. Boy, does that have a homoerotic subtext. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, with Bros, I really like this. I really like the script. It's very cleverly written and performed uh, with lots of funny bits in there. Uh, 8 out of 10 from me. And Gregory King. And talking timely about a gay film there, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival kicks off um, this month too with some Ah, screenings. yes. Good on so, you for mentioning it. Excellent, Greg. Yeah. But, um, other thing I want to point out is Luke McFarlane, who stars in this film, There's throughout the film there's a lot of setting-ups of um, the Hallmark type of soppy films there, and he's starred in 14 of those Hallmark movies there, so <laughs> I think it's setting up his own image here a little bit too, but I gave this 7 out of 10 as well. Mm, and I gave it seven and a half. So we're all in the same territory with a movie that opens next Thursday or this coming Thursday, depending. Actually, that, that's, oh, golly, this is a constant d- debating point between my wife who was born and bred in South Africa and, and me. So if we say next Thursday, is that in, well, this is Sunday. So is that in four days time or is yes. it Sunday? That's how I, I view it. Yeah. So, uh, so what's the difference between next Thursday and this Thursday? You say Thursday week if it's the week after. You do, I wholeheartedly agree. So, but but this week and next th- this Thursday and next Thursday, in the context of today being Sunday, are the same same Thursday, correct? Which is in four days' time. Are we agree in agreement on that or not? Yes, because next means the next one coming up, and yeah. so it's this and Thursday. Yeah, this Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I should bring my darling wife into this conversation because we've had we've had so many discussions about it, and we end up just sitting around laughing. It's just, it's just the English language is a wonderful thing. I um I had cause to go to an appointment during the course of the week, and somebody had sent a report, and the report didn't put the comma in a place the comma could have meant it it should have been. And I got a. This was terribly amusing, because I was speaking to somebody about genetics, and the conversation. Because as I say, it involved a letter, and it involved another person that I'd spoken to, whose name was Luke, and Luke was referring to my brother, who unfortunately is no longer 
with us. And the person I spoke to said, oh, and what about Luke, your brother? And I said, are you telling me something I don't know? I, I, I don't have a brother named Luke. And it all had to do with the incorrect placement of a single comma. And that's what I love about the English language. It can totally change meaning depending upon where punctuation is or isn't. And uh, I suppose, I, I don't imagine it's just English. Uh, Peter, you're, you're uh, conversant with German. Uh, what, what does, I presume punctuation would have similar um, hairy elements to it in German, would it not? To some extent there are, but German, the main issue is where you put the verb and where you put the noun. And in uh, German, usually you put the verb near the end and reverse the noun uh, aspect, whereas in English it tends to be uh, the, the reverse. So uh, it's more grammatical rather than punctuation. A question without notice about your linguistic skills. I, I know my dad, mum and dad came from Europe and where it's common to speak, write and read many, many languages. And I, I really admire that. Did you, were you a German speaker from a young age or did you pick it up more, you know, when you were a little bit older? No, German was my first language. Uh, I didn't start learning English until I went to school. Isn't that interesting? I also, English wasn't my first language either. Uh, my first language was Hungarian. Ah. So, yeah, so, I mean, and we had our grandmother living with us. And, well, I suppose I should say equal because, you know, I, we we used to converse in Hungarian. I, unfortunately, I don't, I haven't kept those skills. You have, which is uh, commendable. But it, it's, it's fascinating. My father was an accountant and he spoke, read and conversed regularly with account, with uh, clients in five languages and it was fascinating to watch him switch seamlessly from one to the other, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's fantastic. He, he was an interpreter and um, at the Olympic Games and 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 places like that. It, it, really, I admire. I, I, at times, we we think English is the be all and end all, and you know, <laughs> there are so many other languages and and cultures that it would be great to be able to be conversant on in um, in foreign tongues. And this is where. I also have an issue, and I know, you know we talk about movies a great deal. Those people who refuse to go to a movie that they have to read because it takes too much hard work, I reckon they're missing out on a great deal because some of the best movies are not made in Australia and the United States and England. So, and, and Peter, you're a big advocate for foreign language films, aren't you? Absolutely. And uh, I mean, World Movies and SBS does have a good audience for uh, subtitle films. And I think people will go to subtitle films if they're good quality films. Gee, gee I, I have friends of mine who simply say no. No, I, you know, I, I want to really enjoy myself. It's going to, you know, I've had a hard week. I just want to, you know, I just want to lose myself in a movie. And they just, no, they, it, it, even a good movie. I, I don't know why, and I'm not sure how to change their opinion other than to, you know, to praise a movie because it's so down, darn fine. But there we go. Let's how, do you, how do you explain Parasite being such a universal success that uh, people who uh, don't speak Korean still went to see it? I agree, but yeah. but that doesn't mean that everybody went to see it. No, right? but you're never going to get everyone. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I mean, okay. In terms, I, I've got no idea about the box office success of Parasite. Compare that to Top Gun. <laughs> well, <laughs> Top Gun needs subtitling as well. 
<laughs> yeah, but I'm saying the, the sheer volume of people that are attending. Anyway, we're talking about all sorts of things from football to foreign tongues. And we are now going to talk about a movie called Barbarian, which I, I reckon is a genuinely creepy horror movie that's got bite. I mean, I I thought, wow, what am I, I in for? Uh, it starts out with the power of suggestion, but morphs into something far more sinister. You've got a character called Tess played by Georgina Campbell. She's driven herself to a very shady part of Detroit where she intends to stay for a night or two. Uh, basically, it's ahead of a job interview and rain's falling down uh, when she gets to her Airbnb. But she finds that there's somebody already in the house that she is meant to be in by herself. It's a musician by the name of Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård. He booked the same home through another social media platform with a lack of available alternatives that there's a conference apparently in town and and although far from comfortable tess reluctantly agrees to stay in the same house as keith she is given the bedroom and he is on the couch and i should say is a perfect gentleman in fact they have more in common than she had expected the next day though after tess returns from the interview things fall apart. That's when she discovers the house, which is the only one intact in the neighbourhood, surrounded by derelict others, has a basement where evil lurks. Then there's a second story thread which emerges concerning the owner of the said property called AJ, played by Justin Long. He's an actor whose career has just hit a major roadblock. The writer and director is a guy called Zach Kreger, done a great job with the material. He creates a sense of unease early on and keeps turning the screws. I'll put that another way. He draws us in and he, he then drops us from a great height. That, that's what it sort of felt like to me. The sound effects, the music by Anna Drubich, I thought they were terrific. They really helped build the tension. And the key characters, Campbell, Skarsgård and Long, they play along very nicely, do they not, Greg King? They do indeed. Um, and this is a film that's hard to talk about without giving any spoilers. Correct. Away. I've been very careful. So You've got to be very please. careful how you talk. But this yeah. was a gen genuinely scary, creepy, unsettling film there. Um, and I like that third little bit there that um, set in the 80s there, which gives you a bit of backstory of the house there. That I wanted to see a bit more, see that developed a little bit more because that was also unsettling a little bit as well. Um, but you're right there. It's um, an un unsettling little film there, um, and it's like a bit like Hitchcock in Psycho where he sort of sets up a scenario, then it jumps to another completely different narrative that you're wondering what's going on here, but it all makes sense eventually. Um, but I agree, the sound effects and that are all um, really well done. It's very unsettling there. The ending is a little bit over the top, though, with the when we get a final reveal of the um, nature of the monster. But, um, yeah, uh, for most of the part, this was um, – Quite a satisfying, scary, dark, creepy horror film. It's one of the better horror films of the year, and it's been a good year for horror films this year, I think. I agree with you, Greg. I mean, it, it does move into, I mean, certainly it, there are jump out of your seat moments, there's cover your eye, eye elements, there, there are shocks and surprises aplenty. It does, though, move into quite bizarre territory, Greg. I think that's uh, what we're both referring to, uh, because it starts out, the, 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 what I said before, the power of suggestion, that there's something about, there's, there's a feeling of unease, but then it goes way, you know, it goes from one extreme to the other. If you're on a bell curve, you're on the left-hand side initially, and by the end, you're way over the right-hand side, aren't you, Peter? 
You certainly are the roller coaster ride of this film, and uh, it's a, it's a, an example of very clever plotting and writing, uh, because we've seen a lot of these horror tropes in many other films, except this one is somewhat different and. Uh, and of course, the old adage is never go down to the basement. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> light on, or you don't see a light on. Oh well, we'll creep down there with a torch <laughs> that inevitably goes out. Right? I mean, you know, every torch that anybody in a horror movie ever carries goes out. So, you know, the the the, uh, the people who make these torches have a lot to answer to, Peter. That's what I they, reckon. They certainly do. They need to see the light, but. Uh, <laughs> But, but, but so, <laughs> off with his head, yes, thank you. Off with his head, thank you very much, yes, a flash in the pan. But, no, it's very clever writing, it's a very well-developed storyline, and I like the way that the audience is really unsettled because it's not quite sure where this film is heading, and that's what I like about films that are not predictable and uh, use the, uh, the horror uh, genre, in this case, to uh, make some clever statements. And, in fact, there are some some statements that are made in the film. So yes, I really enjoyed this film. It's it's a very good piece of writing. Mm, it is. It's funny. I I defy anyone. Let's say you're sitting there for the first half hour watching this to have any clue where it's going. I, I that's what I loved about it. I, I thought, my golly, you sort of do a double take. Hang on, what's happened here? And I, I just <laughs> so few movies are as clever as. Barbarian is at setting that tone. So, did you agree? Do you agree with this, Dave? Did you enjoy Barbarian? Look, I loved the first three quarters of the movie, and I absolutely hated the ending. It's probably the best way to sum it up. I thought Why, because it was too ridiculous, or oh, it just went into that whole um, B grade, C grade horror ending that we've seen a million times before. Whereas the first three quarters of this film was just absolutely brilliant. Um, I love the fact, like you said, that you didn't know where this film was going. Like the introduction of the Justin Long character just comes out of nowhere. Um, yeah. I love the way it was set up. It was, it was horror at its absolute best. Um, there was suspense. You love the characters that were there. Even the Justin Long character, even though there's some questionable things about his character, you kind of liked the character but just the finale, I found the finale went into, it's almost like those first horror movies that Peter Jackson made where he had the idea behind the film, but then it went into this horrible, almost degrade horror um, style that just doesn't do anything for me at all. I thought that, yeah, this film, I was actually going home thinking of ways I would have ended the film in a better way, but I loved the first three quarters I just think a lot of really serious horror fans out there are going to be really, really disappointed with that finale because it's something we've seen so many times. Yeah. I, I, sorry, somebody else was going to say something at that point? No, nope. it's got a, a bit of a, a jump start on the on the feed. I've I got to say that I reckon that the, the three key characters here, Campbell in particular, inhabits Tess's nervy role really well. And... I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that performance. Skarsgård, his character is more chilled. And then you've got, as you mentioned, long entering the fray later as AJ, quite a backstory to him as well. So uh, it, it's, a very, it's a very strong movie that could have finished better. I think we, we sort of, that seems to be the agreement between us today. Let's get a score out of 10 from you to start things off, Greg. 
Oh, look, I like this, uh, like you. I have a few doubts about the ending there, but I'm going to give it a strong seven out of ten. And it's a very hard film to talk about. You've got to be careful not to reveal too much about the plot because it'll ruin the surprises. Absolutely agree with that, Peter Kraus. I don't agree about the ending being uh, a misadventure. I think it actually ties the story and the threads together quite well. I actually really like that. So, no, I like the film very much. Uh, the cleverness is uh, apparent. Eight out of ten. Hmm. Okay. Dave Griffiths. Yeah, I'm going to give it a, a six out of ten. I think. Uh, oh, uh, really? Yeah, right. I didn't like the ending at all. And unfortunately, <laughs> if you can't write a good beginning and you can't write a good ending for a film, it's a little bit of a almost a fail for me. Oh boy, I thought this was a very strong seven and a half. I would have given it more if the ending was a little bit more plausible, shall we say? But it's a really good film, one worth seeing. Called Barbarian on Jair eighty eight FM. Now. The big Hollywood blockbuster movie of the week, Black Adam, M-rated, 125 minutes, and we had the good fortune to see it in IMAX. Boys, do you agree the best possible way to see a movie is at an IMAX theatre? The absorption in what goes on, the the pictures, the sound, we're very privileged that we still happen to be the only state in Australia, and we have been for the last, what, three years or so, to have an IMAX theatre. Do, do you all enjoy the experience as much as I do, whenever I get an, an excuse to go there, I go. Peter? Yeah. Well, I didn't see the film at IMAX, uh, wasn't invited, uh, but uh, yes, IMAX is a, is a great process for uh, films that are appropriate. And, and what about you, Dave? Oh, look, I love it. Second biggest screen in the world. We are so lucky that's in our city. Is that right? I didn't yeah. know that. Second. So where's the, I got to ask, where's the biggest? Well, it was the biggest for years and years and years, and then I think one in America um, was built that's bigger. And the sound as well. It's just awe-inspiring awe for, for big movies. Greg, you, you like IMAX too? Uh, yeah, when it's done well, yes. Um, not many big feature films like this are made purely for IMAX, so they have segments made for IMAX. But I didn't see this in IMAX either. No, 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 but even if they're not made for IMAX. If yeah, you... uh, it's a big, exper big experience and this bit on the big screen, yeah, with the sound almost immersing you in it. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. So, look, it's a film for fanboys, uh, Black Adam, and I, I hope I hope I can – I mean, fanboys, I'm, I'm talking generically, so fangirls, fan non-binary specific. Uh, it's mired in mythology, which will be far more meaningful to those who have read the DC comics, which I had not. Uh, it's the, the character hailed as the slave who became a champion. It's the story behind Teth, T-E-H, T-E-T-H, Adam, Teth Adam, who becomes Black Adam, and that's played by Dwayne Johnson. The action moves from the ancient city, and this is obviously a presumably a made-up name called Karndak, where Adam is enslaved before being gifted almighty powers and imprisoned, and then it moves to 3,000 years later when he is freed. Now, he's actually been jailed by mystical wizards deep within the Rock of Eternity. That's a place that serves as the source of all magic. However, the suspension of time, 5,000 years, hasn't weakened him physically or emotionally, and he's still imbued with the remarkable powers. He's got unbelievable strength. He operates at lightning-fast speed, and he's very angry. Now, during the course of this picture, we, we learn why he wields 
his dark sense of justice on the world, and he refuses to yield. The return 5,000 years later is quickly noted by Carter Hall, a.k.a. Hawkman, played by Aldous Hodge, who puts out a call to his friend Kent Nelson, otherwise known as Dr. Fate, a role filled by Pierce Brosnan. And there's a couple, I mean, they've, they've reformed the justice society, uh, along with Adam Smasher and Cyclone. And the quartet aims to contain the anti-hero, which is the Seth, uh, Teth Adam character, and uh, return him to eternal captivity. It's been written by a group of three, Adam Zykel, Rory Haynes, and Sobrag Nosharavi. Direction from, uh, and I don't know how you pronounce his first name, is it Yame Collet Sierra or Sarah? I'm not sure how you pronounce that, that first name. I apologise to him. Uh, it was it was sort of, he's the guy who was at the helm of Jungle Cruise, which was, I think that came out last year, didn't it, with uh, Dwayne Johnson in the, the lead role. Look, unless you've got a decent understanding of Black Adam before entering the cinema, the film's really convoluted. I, I thought I was playing catch-up most of the way through. It's a visual effects extravaganza, fight sequence after fight sequence. IMAX is the perfect vehicle for the imagery and sound, mind you. Uh, when it when it comes to the storyline, look, none of it's all that inspiring. Uh, it, it's it, it, the plot's ho hum, really no different to the many other superhero movies that we've seen. And and Johnson, look, he's okay. He maintains his stern visage that is required to maintain throughout. Always looks good on the screen. I I, I thought S- Sarah Shahi, her performance as Adriana, the freedom fighter who retains her humanity was pretty good, and, and there's more than a little little get-up-and-go about Bodhi Sabongui, who plays uh, the, the character I've just mentioned, Adriana's street-smart teenage skater son, Eamon. So they're the sort of three key characters. I, I don't know about you, but I found it difficult to understand the narration that kicked off the movie. Now, you know, I'm all for diversity and and uh, of characters and, and sounds, etc. But I just thought the narration was really ordinary at the very beginning. I did not understand it. it was too quick. And also some of the subsequent dialogue wasn't clear either. Why, Dave? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Oh, I, didn't uh, I, didn't, find, I didn't find that to be an issue at all, actually. I thought that um, I know I'm coming from this film probably a little bit different to the rest of you in that I'm a huge DC fan, so new about the character of Black Adam. Um I think it works as a big, dumb action film is probably the best way to put it. The, Does, really? The, yeah, no, I thought it worked. I thought it was interesting to see a character come to the fore that you don't normally see come to the fore for um, DC. And, of course, the whole idea for this film was generated from the fact that Dwayne Johnson once posted online that if he could play any superhero, he would like to play Black Adam. Um, so that kind of fed that seed and they've been trying to find a way to bring Black Adam into the DC universe for a while now. Um, he was supposed to be in Shazam. I think he was supposed to be in Suicide Squad. They ended up bringing him into this one. I think where comic book fans are going to love this film is it raises a lot of the questions that we've had for years and years, such as why when something happens in America or Europe, are the Avengers or the Justice League there straight away? but you'll have a country like this country in Africa that's been in oppression for years and no one's ever come to save them. No Superman, no Batman, no nothing like that. I think that was a a really good point that this film 
um, needed to make because it's something that the fans have been asking for a long time. I think it also um, touched really well on can you be a villain and a hero at the same time? It did have some errors. I thought it had it brought in too many characters. It made the same mistake as the Eternals. It brought in too many characters that people didn't know about or even care about at that time and then expects you to um, fear for their safety when their lives are in danger. But look, at the end of the day, I think this is the new wave that we're seeing for DC Comics, and I, I, I kind of liked it. Wow. Oh, I, I was so disappointed in it, Dave. I really was. I, I wanted so much more. Peter, you haven't seen it yet, or you have? Oh, yes, I've seen it. I've seen it, but not at IMAX. Not at IMAX. Um, uh, okay. Look, for me, uh, I, I thought this was a, a sort of a Russia-Ukraine analogy in terms of what the storyline was trying to do about trying to save a country, save save a, a population, etc. But I found this to be a, a really bloated, effects-driven film, which needed at least two or three more drafts of the script and maybe input from Taika Waititi to be able to demonstrate that this is a story that's worth telling for an audience with a bit of humour. I mean, Dwayne Johnson's performance is virtually a rock. Um, and uh, and I found it actually quite disappointing. The, the character doesn't really develop much at all. And, uh, I, I mean, this is a film that desperately needed, and here's an in-joke, folks, Superman. But anyway, let's not, uh, let's not go any further with that. Uh, I was very disappointed by this film, and I was bored through most of it. Yeah, I, look, I, I'm afraid I'm with you. I, I just thought... It's best suited to those who have historic ties to the superhero, and and you're a great advantage uh, having having been so, Dave. Look, I know many of the movies of this genre are long, superhero films, etc. This one felt particularly so. And what you said a few moments ago really troubled me, Dave. That if this is the direction that superhero movies are going in, by becoming more and more bloated and adding more and more characters and not really developing them, that that Oh, that that's not the direction I would like to see superhero movies go in. My my favourite superhero film is is Spider Man, uh, and and we're not talking about the more recent ones. I'm I'm talking about ones going back, and they keep rebooting that. And I I just have an affinity for that sort of character. Black Adam it did not move mountains for me, and I agree with you, Peter. Stern rewriting and tightening and more substance would have been very much more user-friendly than just fight after fight after fight. And yeah, let's do it again. Let's let's pack up our belongings and do it a third and a fourth and a 53rd time. So I'm giving it a bare pass and I, I was reluctant to do that. It's rated M. It runs for two hours and five minutes, five out of 10. Peter? Uh, I can't even pass it, I'm afraid. Four out of 10 from me. Mm. Dave, I'll be very curious. Go for it, mate. Yeah, I, I, by the way, I didn't mean that the new wave was going to be bloated and introducing new characters. I meant that they're trying to move away from the, the big four, as in... Um, ah, yeah, okay. and bring in, Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm, look, I'm going to give it a, a 7 out of 10. I think that it was it's serviceable, but I think, yeah, if you've read the comics, you're going to get a lot more out of this than what you will if you haven't. Be seven out of ten. So you serviceable, okay? So yeah, I mean that's still reasonably praiseworthy, which is good. I mean that's uh, that's terrific. On Friday evening, I 
had a spine tingling experience. Now, I know, Dave, you went and saw Hocus Pocus too. Uh, did you not? At, yes. Or, yes. At uh, what's the name of the cinema? The Asta. The Asta. Okay. So I, I had the good fortune to be invited to that, but also to the Ukrainian ballet's version of Swan Lake. Now, can you imagine a company in the midst of a war that uh, there was a, at the at curtain call they brought out a the, the the I mean it was just extraordinary they brought out a flag saying dance not war the feeling in the room like you know, I thought the whole place was going to break down in tears there was cheering and there was hollering it was something super special and it we're talking about Swan Lake is one of the most extraordinary ballets that you can imagine. They absolutely did it justice. It was some of the scenery was just extraordinary. The third, there were two intervals. It went on for about three hours in total because of the intervals, or a bit bit under that probably. But it, it, two and a half to three hours. But it was it was just fantastic, really wonderful, and to see the company perform the way they did and still be so tied to their their country of birth and the Australians' love of what the company did. This was at the um, this was at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Uh, great venue, very, very large venue. It was almost packed out. It's received a lot of publicity. If you get a chance to see Ukrainian ballet's Swan Lake, it is absolutely worth seeing. I think last time I saw it was the Bolshoi Ballet's version. So th- th- there's a certain irony in that, isn't there? And, you know, please don't get me wrong, I'm not not uh, having a go at the Bolshoi Ballet. They were fantastic as well. But I've seen Swan Lake, I don't know, five, six, seven times, and oh, the, the, the music is just divine, let alone the dancing, the uh, the, the pirouettes and the the beautiful white swans and the dastardly black swan. Uh, it's a great story. It stands the test of time. And w- whichever company does it, Australia or abroad, it's well worth seeing. So please, folks, uh, Google it, Ukrainian Ballet, and you will see what I'm talking about. Before we go, I also briefly wanted to talk about a um, talking about ballet Dance X Part 1, 2, and 3. I saw Part 1 at the Playhouse at the Arts Centre, and there are a number of different companies over the three-part work that ply their trade. This was the Australian premiere of Johan Inger's comic romantic dance theatre piece called I Knew Then, set to the songs of Van Morrison. Loved it. Absolute. Inger's a, a Swedish choreographer, danced with the Netherlands Dance Theatre, made works for leading companies all over Europe. And it was a a half hour piece, 28 minutes, energetic, humorous, the music. Wow. Gee, Van Morrison loved it. Absolutely loved it. Nine dancers, five men, four women, got the evening off to a particularly memorable start with their stagecraft and impeccable skills. So really worth catching. Dance X parts one, two, and three at the Playhouse at Arts Centre. Check it out, folks. Well worth doing so. Catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment.